0: You are listening to the Testudo Times Podcast Network.
1: Hey guys, welcome to the latest Testudo Times Outtakes Podcast. I'm your host, Lila Bromberg, with Matt Levine, the host of our regular podcast, and today we have the voice of University of Maryland sports with us today with Johnny Holliday, how are you doing? Good,
2: thank you. Thanks for having me on with you guys.
1: Yeah, thanks for coming on. So, you know, you're being honored for, you know, 40 years as a voice of, you know, Maryland sports at this uh, gala on November 12th, as well as uh, your work with uh, covering the nationals on Masson. Uh, You know, you've gotten a ton of awards over the years, just being, you know, with different sports casting and radio awards, Uh, but you know, how much does this event mean to you to be honored for your work with uh, Maryland?
2: Well, when they first came to me and, uh, and mentioned this, uh, my response was, I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. There's no need to do this. Uh, and I wasn't for it because I haven't really done that much, to be honest with you. But I think when I sat back and, and thought about it, and uh, I was very humbled and very uh, honored that they would choose to, I reckon this is 41 years, this is my 41st year. Mm-hmm. And I said, if you're gonna do something, do it after I retire, which will be some years down the road. And they said, we wanna do it now. So I, I said, okay, go ahead. And it's it's very nice, very, very nice. And I'm very happy to be part of it.
1: Right, and you, you've gotten so many of these awards over the years, you know, you mentioned it's humbling. Did you ever expect, you know, to be, uh, you know, making the name for yourself that you have never. and doing all this? <laughs>
2: never, <laughs> never, because I didn't, I didn't get in broadcasting until I was, 18 years old until I was 18 I graduated to high school at 17 and uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do I wanted to go to college and get a degree and coach and teach that was my number one goal and we were the first graduating class at North Miami High School in Florida we had great teachers we had great coaches with us and I kind of wanted to be like those guys and uh so, I had to work to save money to go to school. And I took a job delivering parts for a Chevrolet company in the parts department. I, I knew nothing about parts, nothing at all.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then I took a job in a mint store, uh, working in the stock room. I was making very little money, maybe $35, $40 a week. That's about all. And so I lucked into broadcasting strictly by accident. And a guy was told that I had experience, and I had no experience. And he said, I'm looking for somebody from my station. And without even thinking, I said, I'm your guy. I, I had no idea what was inside a radio station. So the guy hired me. I was 18 years old and worked in some small cities, Perry, Georgia. Then I went back to Miami, which is my hometown. Then I went to Rochester, New York. Then I went to Cleveland. Then I went to New York, San Francisco. And that's all over a span of 60 62 years, And I came to Washington in 1969, 50 years ago. Been ever since, yeah. And everything I've done has been self-taught. Nobody taught me how to do anything. I mean, I knew I could do it if I was ever given the chance. And that's what I tell young people who want to get in broadcasting: if you really think you can do it, and if you have that desire and the ability to be ready to do it at a moment's notice. And if somebody opens that door for you, then you go in and you take advantage of it. And I was lucky to do that. It's not a matter of talent. I think it's a matter of timing uh, timing, and the station you work for and the people that hire you. And if you fit in with
0: everybody else, and I've been very, very lucky, very lucky. And they want us to discuss what charity that you're using for the gala. So you're deciding to donate your proceeds to a charity? Which yeah, charity?
2: the charity will be Georgetown Visitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my daughters went there, all three of them, Kelly, who's a physician up in Bel Air, uh, Tracy, who's a neonatal nurse at Shady Grove, and Maura, who's a nurse at Suburban, all went to Georgetown Visitation. And there was a nun that I became very, very close with, <coughs> excuse me, Sister Marie Louise, who passed away at age 90. About ten or eleven years ago, and there's a scholarship fund in her name, and that's where we'll take some of the proceeds mm-hmm. of this event and, and give it in, to that scholarship fund.
1: Right, and I know that you got your start as uh, a radio disc jockey. What right. was it like uh, back in those days? You know, doing you know music as opposed to oh, a sports I, side. I loved
2: it. I absolutely loved it. I couldn't wait to go to work every day. Uh, the stations that I worked for in Rochester, almost every station was number one in the ratings. And playing the popular music of today and having a chance to interact with all the artists, Neil Diamond being one of them, um, it, it was it was terrific. I, I loved every single minute of it. But I got to a point that I, I, I kind of branched off into sports and theater and commercials and I knew that ever the chance came to give up playing the records, I would do it. And so I stopped, I think the last time I played a record was 1977, 78, somewhere like that.
1: And you got to emcee one of the last Beatles performances, right? It
2: was the last one. Yeah, the last time they were together. And the funny thing was, we had no idea it was the last time they would perform together as a group. Candlestick Park in San Francisco in August of 1966. And uh, sitting around just like we're sitting here now, talking. No big deal, nobody knew it's the last time, nobody took photographs, nobody got autographs, none of that stuff. And because I'd been around so many big artists and had been able to know them and get to know them well and do things with them, but the Beatles were just another group to me. It was no big deal. And then in retrospect, I wish that I had some pictures taken because it was a very, very exciting night. What were
0: the Beatles like?
2: Uh, you know, they were they were as down to earth as any four rich guys could be. <laughs> could be. Uh, I don't think they they had just begun to really scratch the surface, and they had changed their music a little more psychedelic type things they were into at that point. Uh, but they were just, to me, just regular guys that. We talked about, I'd met them in New York when I worked in New York. We talked about New York. We talked about a TV show I was the announcer for called Hullabaloo on NBC. We talked about that. We talked about their tour and so forth. Just small talk, having, having sandwiches and Cokes and and snacks and back in the uh, Giants clubhouse. And there was nothing special about them that I could I could remember. Just really nice guys.
1: You know, you self-taught yourself a lot with sports. Broadcasting. Was there anyone that you looked up to in the field growing up?
2: Yeah, there was. Uh, when I was in Cleveland, I used to spot for the Browns. I used to spot the opposing team uh, for the Browns. So when the Dallas Cowboys came to town, there was a their broadcaster was named Frank Lieber. and I liked the way that I just liked the style. I liked the way he did a game. He let the game dictate the emotion of his broadcast. If it was an exciting play you would get excited. If a guy picks up a yard, it's not very exciting when you pick up a yard. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of put in the back of my mind, I said, boy, I like the way that he does these games. There was another guy that did the uh, games for the Green Bay Packers. Another guy did the games for the New York Giants, and I kind of watched the way all these guys did it and admired the way that they could handle different situations and not panic and paint the picture. And I'd say Frank Lieber was probably the most influential for me. And he did the Cowboys, then he did
0: the CBS game on Sunday. And just a marvelous announcer. And did did anyone mentor you to kickstart your sports broadcasting career? Was everything kind of luck of the draw and you were in the right place? Uh, Right place, luck of the draw.
2: And I always knew that I could do it if I was ever given the opportunity. And so the first the first game I ever did was my first job in Perry. I was 18 years old, and I convinced management to let me go and do the high school basketball game. And since we were a daytime station, we would play it back the next day. But all the kids would hear their names on the radio and the parents. And, and so I would sit in the stands with a tape recorder, and it had to be terrible. I mean, it had to be god-awful, the broadcast. I, I had no idea what I was doing. But I did it, and we played it back the next day. And then the next thing I did was when I got to Cleveland, I didn't do anything in Rochester. So in Cleveland, Art Modell owned the Cleveland Browns. And I became his public address announcer just by making a call. Uh, The PA guy had passed away in the offseason, so I called and asked to speak to Mr. Modell, and they put me right through. And... I said, Mr. Modell, I said, my name is Johnny Holliday, I do the afternoon show in WHK. Oh, hi, Johnny, I listen to you on the way home every day. So you got <laughs> your foot in the door right there. I said, what are you going to do for PA uh, guy? He said, oh, well, I'm looking for somebody, but I think I'm going to give it to the guy who is the spotter. Are you interested? And I said, yes, sir, I am. Okay. He said, okay, so we got this doubleheader coming up in August, and the first game will be the Eagles against the Giants and the second game was the Redskins against the Browns. So he said, you do the first game and I'll let the other guy do the second game. So I did the first game, we have a spotter with us and I did it from the field, wherever the ball was, that's where I was. And then he called down and said, you do the second game. So that's how I got the PA job for the Browns. And when I went to New York, I didn't do any sports. I did Hullabaloo and NBC. And when I went to San Francisco, Uh, I called the Raiders and I said, okay, I was the Browns PA announcer, do you need a guy? Yeah, we do. All timing. So I became the Oakland Raiders public address announcer for the five years I was in San Francisco. And then I called the Warriors and I said, "Uh, do you need a PA guy? Yeah, we do. (laughs) Okay. I was the PA guy for the Warriors. I became the closest of friends with Rick Barry. So uh, one of the TV stations said, have you done, you've done basketball? I, yeah, I never said no. I said, yeah, I've done basketball. Yeah, <laughs> never done. So I did the Warriors exhibition games on television. Rick Barry was my analyst, one of the 50 greatest NBA players ever. And uh, so it kept growing and growing. Then the Giants were looking for a pregame guy. So I did the Giants pregame on television. Then the, uh, the last game I did before I came to Washington it was Stanford-Cal on radio. T- I'm sorry, for television. So each game that I did was kind of like a new experience for me. Uh, and I was very fortunate. But, but the greatest story of all is when I did a, my first baseball game, I got a call from here in Washington, and they said to me, you've done baseball? I said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Never done baseball. We want you to go down to Greenville and do the ACC championship. NC State and Clemson, and whoever wins that game plays for the. Uh, will go on to the regionals, and we may have you do that. So I go down to Greenville, and my analyst is Terry Gannon, who's now at ABC, and a guy uh, who played at Kentucky, a basketball player. So I did the game, on on the radio on television. Never done baseball before. The next game I did was the Orioles at Cleveland. So I never did a minor league game. I did one college baseball game, and then I got major leagues. Right place, right time.
1: So what kind of strategy did you go in with those games, you know, not having covered those sports before?
2: I I mean, I, I, pl- I played football, baseball, and right. basketball, so I know, I know about mm-hmm. the sport and i kind of had in my back of my mind how i was going to do it if i ever got the chance so it really to me it wasn't that difficult Mm -hmm. the difficult thing that i faced and having never done a sport before was at the olympics in sarajevo for abc i did women's figure skating never saw a figure skating (laughs) event in my life because i grew up in miami florida i did uh women's figure skating and hockey never done hockey. I've done one game at the Olympics. That was it. And I went down and did gymnastics. I don't know a thing about gymnastics. I came out to Maryland sat down with Bob Nelligan, Brett Nelligan's dad, Mm -hmm. who was the gymnastics coach. He gave me all the information about how to do a gymnastics current event. And I did one year of that in Florida for television with two analysts and I figured they will never ask me back again. Because they got to know, he knows nothing about him. I did it eight straight years. And it got easier and easier and easier every single year. So even though I knew nothing about the sports, I could still do it. Championship boxing. Mm -hmm. Guy says, you've done boxing? (laughs) Yeah, I've done boxing. Sure. So I did nine Sugar Ray Leonard championship fights on ABC Radio. And I had former champions with me as the analyst. And you kind of rely upon them a lot. You set them up. Let them do most of the talk. Right. So it's uh, it's been very interesting.
0: You mentioned a lot of the teams that you covered, professional and collegiate, and a lot of the sports that you covered in the Olympics and golf too, and boxing. So which are your favorite teams that you did cover, and and why did why did you like to cover those teams in sports? Uh,
2: I think the thing I liked the the best about uh, I did boxing from the Olympics. I liked working with uh, Ken Norton, who was a former heavyweight champion. Interacting with Howard Cosell, I don't know if you know Howard Cosell or not. Yes. Uh, interacting with him, probably the Olympics in, in boxing in L.A., in Barcelona, men's basketball, which we did with Jim Valvano. Uh, so I did Sarajevo, I did Barcelona, Sydney, Australia, Sapporo, Japan, uh, Albertville, France. Um, I probably said that would be the Olympic or the highlight of the Olympic games. And then for baseball, without question, the Nationals and with college stuff, the Maryland things like the comeback went over Miami. We're down 31 nothing at halftime, came back to win. And, of course, the National Championship in basketball. There's, not, there's nothing like that. But I think my, my whole thought process was no matter what sport I'm doing at the time, that's the most important to me. And that's the one I like the most. I mean, right now, everybody's talking about, hey, how about that basketball team coming up? Going to be ranked number five in the. I'm not even worried about basketball right now. Next month we overlap. We have football and basketball. Right now it's all football, and I think you cheat yourself and you cheat the listener if you don't give everything you've got to whatever sport you're doing at the time.
1: Right. And you mentioned the 2002 national championship. What was going through your head while you're calling that game as it's coming down to a wire?
2: I was, I was trying honestly not to break down with tears because I I know what these kids have gone through. I know what Gary Williams had gone through. And I'm looking across the floor as the final seconds are taken off and I can feel the emotion coming to me. And I see Juan Dixon or, or Chris Wilcox run his hand through Gary's hair, mess it up. Everybody's hugging each other. And the final seconds are taken down. And all I could get out was, and the, and the kids have done it. And at that point, I couldn't talk anymore. So I really got wrapped up in the emotion of the moment. I was so happy for the school, happy for Gary Williams, and happy certainly for the players.
1: Right. What was it like to just be a part of such a historic moment? What was that atmosphere like after uh, they after they won it,
2: it? was inc- We went back, back to the hotel, and everybody was in the lobby with the parents and the big boosters and, and friends. And everybody wanted to be – the players came in. And it was, it was incredible. But the most emotional moment, I think, came when we came back the next day. We went to Coalfield House and had an impromptu press, uh, pep rally with like 13,000 people showed up in a moment's notice. And as we taxi on the runway, the fire department was on the runway at BWI with the hoses out, spraying the plane <laughs> in a victorious salute as we came in. We got in the buses, we came down 95, and people were pulled over on 95, horns blaring and players waving, helicopters above the buses coming back. It was really, really something.
0: And at, that be- at the beginning of that season, do you think it could ever get to that point where they win the national championship?
2: Uh, you know, I didn't at the beginning of the year because it was a team made up of just good players, there was no All Americans. No McDonald's All-American on that team, and then along about January, I said, "Boy, this is something special. These guys really—they play together. Uh, they're unselfish. They've got so many individual outstanding players. You know, we could, we could, we can get to the NCAA tournament. Oh, really? <laughs> and then we win the whole thing. But if you look at who we beat to get to that championship game against Indiana, had to go through." UConn, had to go through Syracuse, had to, I mean, go, stand, I mean it was a murderer's row of who you're going to face just to get to Atlanta. Yeah, it was it was great.
1: Do you think it means anything that the Final Four is in Atlanta again this year?
2: Uh, I would put my money on a pretty good chance on this, <laughs> on this group. I mean, this is Mark Turgeon's best group, I think. And they're young. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at all the sophomores they got on this team. And with Cowan, and with what they did last year, and it's it's just Marcel and these guys and Sticks, uh, you know, picking up like 20 pounds, and and it's it's they have all the potential, and I know right now, even though it's whatever the date is today, mm-hmm. I guarantee you, Mark Turgeon's and to of these guys, you don't you don't read about your rankings, you don't think about your rankings, that that would that, that's that's not good if you do that. Right. That's just play and see what happens, but they're going to be darn good, really good.
1: Did you think that that call was going to become so iconic? Uh,
2: no, game? I didn't. <laughs> I really didn't. And a lot of people say, did you what? Did you have written down what you were going to say? I said, I never do. I've nothing <laughs> written down. It just, whatever came to mind, and I, I don't know what my mind was thinking, but that's all I could say was, uh, uh, you know, Marilyn, and the kids have done it. So it, uh, I guess people remember that.
0: What are your other favorite moments of covering not just the 2002 basketball team, but other teams that were also good and some um, teams that even weren't that good? What were your yeah, favorite moments?
2: I, th- I think uh, when you look back at Maryland now, in 41 years, certainly working with Lefty Drussell, when he was the coach when I started back in 1979, and how a legend this guy is and he was great to work with, intimidating until you get to know him, but he was great and any time we beat Duke was always something special for me, whether it was Lefty or Bob Wade or Gary or or now Mark Turgeon. Uh, The Duke games were classics, Uh, the Lynn Bias game in 86 down at the Smith Center when we handed Carolina their first loss, and Bias had 35 in that game, and he was probably without a doubt, if not the best player that I I saw play here, one of the top three or four. And the Keith Gatlin throwing the ball off the back of a North Carolina player, and laying it back up and in, which you hardly ever see anymore. Um, and then going on to win an ACC championship with John Gilchrist. And I think we were the sixth seed at that time. We won it by beating the number three seed, number two seed, number one seed. And Gilchrist was the MVP. He had 30 points or more, I think, in every game. And watching Walt Williams play, who now is with me on radio for the games, and he had a streak of seven consecutive games where he scored 30 or more. And nobody's done that in the history of Maryland basketball. Nobody, very few people have done it in the country. Right. And watching him play... And then in football, going back to the days of Boomer Esiason, and how good he was. And every Saturday, the stadium was filled when Bobby Ross was coaching. There were 50,000 people for every game. And Mike Loxley can get back to that, I'm sure, in time, and have the same kind of response that, that Coach Ross had. And being with the different coaches I work with, with Ross is one of my favorites. Mark Dufter was one of my favorites, and still is. And then Ralph Friedgen comes along, and and uh, and then in basketball, of course, working with Gary for 23 years, doing his radio shows, doing his TV shows, and and uh, being at the Hall of Fame when he got inducted a couple of years ago, very special. So there's been uh, there's been a ton of memories. Uh, I remember once in in uh, down in North Carolina, we were going to go for the ACC championship. We also had the this is 2003. We also had the opening game in basketball the same day. So I had to I didn't make the decision, Debbie. Yow, the AD made the decision. She said, I think you ought to go do football because there's a lot of basketball to be played. But in Gary Williams' mind, that was the day you raised the banner for the national mm-hmm. championship. And he wasn't happy that I <laughs> was down there. And so that was one of the the perils of doing two sports when they have the game, and a lot of times I would do I do two games in one day. I do a kickoff at noon at Carolina, fly back. We'd have a basketball game at night, and I'd do that. Or I'd be doing theater, and we we'd be at Clemson for a noon game, come back. I'd be on stage at eight o'clock at night doing doing theater show.
1: And what approach do you take when you're you know meeting those new coaches and players for the first time and getting them you know really comfortable with you on air and yeah. doing all these different events? Well, I
2: think the the number one thing is that. They know where my allegiance and my heart lies. I'm on the staff of the University of Maryland. And they know that I'm not going to hammer them. I'm not going to second guess them. It's not my job. My job is to call the plays the way it is. But I also want them to understand I always give credit to the other team. If the other team is putting up 52 points, as Penn State did, then they're going to be doing something right. And you can't camouflage that. And I said, but I'm for you guys every single time you step on that floor. And you let me know if there's something you want to talk about with your players, or if your players have a mom they want to wish happy birthday to. I'll do anything I can for you and put whatever sport I'm covering, that I'm there for them. And I think they, they, they like that, and they, they trust me, trust my decision, my judgment.
0: And you mentioned calling multiple games in a day throughout your career so what goes into your preparation for just having one game a day or even two or three how do you prepare for each game a lot
2: <laughs> i mean it's tough it's tough now basketball is easier because you can make out your my charts are already memorized, so you can make them out in advance but the football is the tough thing because there's so many players as you right. guys know and it takes a lot more time but the second game is the one that suffers because you've worked hard for four hours you're talking and you are got to fly back and sit down and talk for two more hours. So when you start off and you're feeling good, now you're tired, but you got another game to go. But still the emotion of the game picks you back up. So it's it's a little bit more time consuming and you have to spend uh, a little bit more effort in getting through two of them. But I like it. Like we're mm-hmm. going to be in Orlando for the tournament. Right. Thanksgiving. Saturday's an off day. So I'll fly to East Lansing and do football. Then I'll fly back and do the championship game on Sunday. I've done it before, so it's no big deal. But to everybody on the outside, wow, how do you do that? (laughs) Well, fly, fly. You fly and then you fly back. That's how you do that.
1: And has there been kind of like the biggest personality that you've covered or worked with over years that just kind of sticks out in your mind?
2: Wow. Uh, There's been so many during my disc jockey days, Uh, being with the Beatles, being with the Temptations, being with the Four Tops. Being with Sly and the family, I mean, I could list on and on and on the various artists that I've become friends with. In the sports world, uh, I had a charity basketball team in Cleveland, New York, San Francisco and here. And in San Francisco, Rick Barry played with us here in Washington, Washington Redskins, Art Monk. uh, All these guys who are in the Hall of Fame played with us. Uh, Denny McLean, the last 30-game winner in Major League Baseball, was a friend of mine. Joe Theisman played with us. Uh, then with the Nationals, becoming really good friends with Ian Desmond and with Ryan Zimmerman and with Scherzer and with uh, Strasburg, Anthony Rendon. And there's there's so many of them. Willie Mays, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, all those guys from yesterday. Um, it's, it's hard to list all of them there, there's, there's a ton of them
1: is there one that has like the craziest personality when whenever you have them on air interview them
2: uh, he, it was a guy called Niger Morgan who played for the Nats some years ago and he was he was kind of like off the charts he never knew what he was going to say and he would always come up with something on our post game show <clears throat> something to break me up tried to, he tried to break me up all the time. Or if I did an interview with him or pregame show, he'd have something for me to make me laugh. And I always enjoyed being. Rendon was the same way. Right now, mm-hmm. uh, we did something with him for Channel 4 about going to the All-Star game, and he he was magnificent. And he, he was never that good on pre- or post-game shows with, with Massim. At this particular time, he was more serious. Uh, always one of my favorite interviews would be him. And then, with among the big guys, Jack Kent Cook, who used to own the Redskins, got to be really good friends with him. Uh, Art Modell, when he owned the Browns. uh, In boxing, there'd be Sugar Ray Leonard, I became very good friends with. At the Olympics, uh, I could pick out three or four different people that I worked with Carol Ice Jenkins, an Olympic gold medalist, Uh, Lou Nanny, the general manager of the Minnesota North Stars. These were all just big, big, almost bigger-than-life personalities. But I found that sometimes the bigger they were, the nicer they were. Howard Cosell became very good friends with him. And uh, I would tape my show to New York for ABC Radio every morning at about 5.30. And he'd be in his apartment in New York listening to my show, and he would tape his show from his apartment. And we would banter back and forth every single day, and I did that for twenty-eight years. And we became very, very good friends. Uh, governor Bob Ehrlich, another monumental figure, the current governor Larry
0: Hogan. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I could go on and on right. and on. You haven't got enough time for this <laughs> this podcast. <laughs> you mentioned the uh, pregame and postgame shows for the Nationals. Yeah. How'd you get involved with that?
2: Uh, the television uh, rights holder, Masson, the guy who was the executive producer, named Chris Glass, and I had worked at Home Team Sports, and I did a lot of things with him. So he came to me and said, uh, "We're going to put together the pre and post game show. I'd like to have you do it." And uh, I said, "Well, I, I, you know, I do Maryland football and basketball, and then I do theater in the summertime. So I really, I'm really not interested. So I turned it down." And he came to a Maryland basketball game and sat down and said, hey, Maryland gets priority. Okay. If you have a Maryland event, we have somebody fill for you. But we don't have anybody local. So we'd like to have your presence. We're going to have Ray Knight, MVP of the World Series, former manager of the Cincinnati Reds, as your partner. And give it a year. So I said, okay. It worked out fine. It was great. It was great.
1: And you, you know, mentioned covering Len Bias. I, you know, had heard it. Oh, yeah. You know, you saying at his funeral, how did, you know, yeah. what was that experience like? Oh. How did that come about?
2: It was heart heartbreaking to do that. I was honored that his mom asked me number one, and we would become friends. Uh, I covered him when he signed at Maryland, going to Northwestern High School. Uh, at the very beginning, in his freshman year, he was not that good of an interview because he was really shy, very. Uh, Introverted, and as the years went on, he got better and better and better, and so when he passed away, I mean, I couldn't believe it. Number one, I was like everybody else; I was in shock. And so his mom said, "Lynn would want you to sing." I said, "Oh, that's a misadvice. I can't. I can't do that." And she said, "Well, you do theater, don't you?" I said, "Well, that's different. You know, you're doing a role in a show, and it's mostly up-tempo shows." And she said well you sang at jerry smith's funeral didn't you i said yes ma'am and you sang at pete wysocki two former redskins passed away so i think you please sing in my I said okay So i was in the balcony at the chapel and when they came down the aisle i got through the song the lord's prayer and i thought about as i was singing it i thought about everything but what was going on just to keep the emotion away and as she's coming down the aisle she looks up to me and she blows me a kiss and at that point it was all over. Luckily I'd finished the song and all but it was it was an honor a real honor to do that.
1: Right and you know as we kind of wrap things up we talked a little bit about your expectations for you know Maryland basketball you've you know covered the team for so long I've seen you know what faults a team what you know helps a team what are your expectations and predictions for both you know, Maryland football and basketball in this uh, in these seasons? I
2: think that people should take a deep breath with football right now. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Uh, if anybody's going to get the job done, it's Mike Locksley. Because I worked with him before, twice when he was here. You know the kind of guy he is. You know the kind of recruiter he is. You know how he believes in these kids. And he grew up in the same kind of environment a lot of these kids grew up with in Prince George's County. So he knows how difficult it is for some of them. And he relates so well to everybody, to you and me, you guys, the media, the families, the players, and the recruits loving. And the coaches, the high school coaches in this area absolutely adore Mike Loxley. And he'll get the job done. He'll, he'll He'll get it done in time. And in basketball, you want to be the coach that follows the Hall of Fame coach, not the guy like Mark Turgeon came in and following Gary Williams. That's a tough act to follow, what Gary did. But look what Mark has done. Incredible, incredible job in his eight years here with Maryland. And it's only gonna get better. Uh, we're lucky to have a guy like him, number one, who like Loxley, really relates to these players. And with the talent he's got this year, I mean, the sky's the limit. Uh, the Big Ten is the toughest conference in the country. Michigan State's there. And Michigan State's got almost all their guys back. And that's going to be the team that's going to be, I think, the team that will give Maryland the most trouble in the conference. But a lot of people pick us to win the Big Ten. Everybody picks us to be in the top 15 or top 10. Some even go as high as number five. And uh, I can't wait for basketball. A lot of football yet to be played, mm-hmm. but yeah, basketball is going to be something very, very special. And I would imagine... You'll see more sellouts this year at Expedalty Center than we've ever seen since the building's been open. This team is that good.
1: All right. Well, thank you for joining us oh. on the podcast. Everyone, that's Johnny Holiday I'm Bromberg with Matt Levine. Thank you, Matt. Uh, yeah. You guys will always hear him on Maryland Sports Broadcast, and uh, we will be back with more uh, Maryland Sports uh, personality interviews on the Outtakes podcast. Thank you for tuning in.